All right, we are in Revelation 19. Today we are dealing with the return of Jesus. Do you know what that's all about? What a, what a day. I've, t- I've titled the sermon, Jesus and His Day. This is really the focal point of all of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. The passage that we're sitting in today, there is within we, each one of us, if you know who Jesus is as your Lord, as your Savior, as your King, as your God, the one who you hope in day in and day out. The prayer that I just prayed, in, uh, it comes out of 1 John chapter 3. There's coming a day when I get to look into the face of my creator. And the promise that's associated with that is because he's going to give me the power to be just like him. And it doesn't mean that he's going to make us to be God, but he's going to make us to be one with him. That, that, that image that he created in Adam and Eve that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, that image that we see that is lost in Genesis 3 because of disobedience and sin and all that that represents and means, the thrust of every single one of the rest of the words is pointing to this future day when the God who created the heavens and the earth who we are separated from because of our sin, the God who became like us and tabernacled in this flesh to die the death that each one of us deserve. And the evidence of the reality of that is the empty tomb, his resurrection. So people watched him die. People saw him again after he rose again from the dead, fulfilling prophecies fulfilling promises that God gave to old prophets that were promises that were fulfilled in that day that that testimony that witness that experience of those individuals lives their what they saw is what we place our hope in today like if those men and those women were liars And Jesus did not raise again from the dead. The Bible tells us, Paul says, you know, we are to be pitied the most among all of men if the tomb is still empty. But the tomb isn't empty. This is a real historical event. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave a promise. I will always be with you. This is not a departure. I am with all of you all the time. I am coming back. So this is the section that we're sitting in this morning in Revelation 19 is the return of Jesus as king and as Lord. Because we've been sitting in the prophecy of this revelation. Jesus is unveiling himself, revealing himself to his apostle, to his disciple that called himself this beloved disciple. John says that he is on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1, he's saying he was on this island before the testimony of Jesus. This was like a prison colony. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord day. And the idea of being in the Spirit is is in John, in the Gospel of John, uh, in Jesus' conversation, he says that that God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. 
So being in the Spirit means that you are in a relationship with the Lord. We are in the Spirit right now on the Lord's Day. Today is defined as the Lord's Day by the church because Jesus resurrected from the dead on Sunday. So you sit in the historical Jewish religion, and God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested, the Sabbath day. The seventh day is Saturday. That's the day of rest. Today, we define as the Lord's Day where this day of rest, this day of worship, this day where we lay aside our, our work and our energy in producing for ourselves, and we gather together as a community to, to worship God together, to fellowship with him together, to sit and know and understand his words, who he is, his nature, his character, his plans, and his purposes. That was done on Saturday, and it shifted to Sunday, because again, in, in honor of and in recognition of the power that occurred on that day, the Lord's Day. But I've titled my sermon today, this is Jesus and His Day. So today, most definitely, is the Lord's Day, and I want you to hold on to that, because at the end of the message, we're going to return back to that idea. But for the rest of the, the intermediate period of time, we're going to look at Jesus's day as this future day that he is going to come back. And last week, because I was a little bit long-winded, we didn't finish Revelation 19 verse 10, which is one of my, it's, it is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because again, it gives me definition and clarity for all of God's word. And the line is the testimony of Jesus, the personal life experience of you, of men and women in the word of God, of brothers and sisters all throughout time, all throughout this world, the witness, your witness, your testimony, what you can say, this is why you believe that God is. This is why you believe that he is your God. This is why you believe Jesus is your savior, your Lord, your king, your witness. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's, it's the very breath, the word for spirit, it's, it's breath, it has the idea that carries, it's our, it's our life force. You can only hold your breath for so long before you die. So this idea that our life is in him, the word spirits, it's, it's wind, it's breath. It's defined, you know, again, just as, as God defines himself as the Holy Spirit. So here, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I told you last week that we're going to define what prophecy is. So... We see in the Old Testament, Abraham is called a prophet by God. Moses is called a prophet by God. When you sit in the narrative of Moses and his calling and what it was that God was doing with him and communicating with him and using him as a deliverer to deliver his children out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, there is a, the first idea of prophecy that we see is when that spirit that God placed upon Moses, God placed himself upon Moses and communicated with Moses. And Moses was be, to be a prophet, to be a mouthpiece to the people, to speak to the people his own words. No, to speak to the people God's words. So that's what a, the role of a prophet is. And the words that come out of a prophet's mouth are to repeat what God has said. So in Numbers chapter 11, there's a scene where the spirit that was upon Moses was taken and given 
to the 70 elders, these 70 leaders of the nation of Israel. And for this singular day, these men were allowed to prophesy just as Moses prophesied, and they never did it again. This is not something that, uh, that a man or a woman does independently of God and his power to proclaim the word of God with his power, with his authority, is a gift given from God, and it's not something that we can muster up in ourselves, but it's something that he gives. So usually prophecy has the idea that God is giving information to an individual so that that individual can take those words and go give it to the people, to a broad audience in general. And oftentimes it's associated with a warning, it's associated with promises. And usually, especially when you sit in Old Testament prophecy, it's associated with the future. It is foretelling a future event. And we see repetitiously in the Old Testament, God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this gift. I'm gonna give you the gift of future knowledge so that when this event happens, that you'll know who I am. So again, I want you to sit in this definition of John is a follower of Jesus. John was called by Jesus from his occupation as a fisherman in, in dad's business to come and to follow Jesus. John is a young man, followed Jesus in the flesh. He heard his words with his own ears. He saw the miracles. He saw Jesus die on the cross. He heard coming out of Jesus' mouth the one that he looked to as the Messiah as he is dying. John, take care of my mom, Mary. John saw the dead body taken off the cross. John saw the body laid in the tomb. Three days later, John saw the empty tomb. A little bit later that afternoon, they're all in fear and confusion in the upper room, and John saw Jesus just pop into the room. John saw Jesus, John touched Jesus, John heard Jesus, John ate with Jesus. We're sitting in this man's testimony. And here he is at the end of his life, lived a life bearing that testimony to different cultures at different times. He's a pastor, a leader, we believe, in the area of Ephesus. That's why he is on this island of Patmos. And he says, I was there on the Lord's Day, worshiping my God and my Savior. And on this day, I was given this vision. Now, I just taught through Revelation. It took me two days to teach all the way through it to pastors in Kenya. We're roughly like 30 weeks into going through Revelation verse by verse here on Sunday mornings. My understanding of this revelation that was given to John is this all occurred on this singular day. Can you imagine? So we're sitting in his testimony, and Jesus gives to him the words of this prophecy. These are the word of God, the words of God given to John, so that John can take these words and give it to the seven churches, these very specific churches in Asia, and they have been preserved for us today so that we would know who our God is. And it's much of Revelation is, its focus is on the, the future and the events that are going to transpire in this world immediately before Jesus comes back. 
And as I sit in these words, it is all evangelistic. It is God proclaiming his nature, his character, his plans and purposes from the very beginning and giving humanity their final opportunity to repent and to bend the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords before he comes. Because the day of the Lord is a horrific day. And, I, and again, I've brought, I've brought up this word multiple times as I sit in this prophecy. It's horrific to me. The day that Jesus comes back is the day of a physical execution of all those who are going to be gathered in war against his people around Jerusalem on this future day that when he comes back, there is no war. He strikes them down with the words out of his mouth that we're going to read this morning. Not a good day. And the, the horror to me and the, the mourning to me and the grief and the sorrow that's associated with the day of Jesus for me is for all of those who don't bend the knee yet. Hey, Jesus, Jesus captured my heart a long time ago, and he continues to transform me day in and day out. And I have so much joy in that, and I, I love the joy that we have together as brothers and sisters. You know, as often as we gather together, just sitting across the table from each other, just talking about what the Lord is doing, opening up his word, what do you think, what do I think? We sharpen one another. It's awesome fellowship. It's wonderful. I walk out filled with joy and strength constantly, uh, as often as we gather together. And then at the same time, there is that other rail of life where there's, you know, there's good and bad always going on at the same time. There's this grief and this, there's this mourning associated with the lives of those who I know and that I love that are still shaking their fist, that for whatever personal reasons that they have, they're not able to believe the words that God created them and that God loves them. You know, sitting in that, that just self-rejection as we look at ourselves in the mirror and like, how can God love me for all of the stuff that I've done? You know, I deserve the pain and the, the, the agony of life. I don't deserve to fellowship with his. I don't deserve the promises that he promises. That You know, that's a, that's a big hurdle for many to overcome, and I have a grief for that. There's so many that are out there in the world that are doing their own things that I listen to our Savior's words on the cross. What does he say to those who are mocking him and crucifying him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're blind, they're ignorant, they're rebellious, and what's necessary is for them to be astonished and stopped in their tracks with the reality in regards to who God is. And for me, that is my understanding of what prophecy is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is something that is often astounding. We just sang a song about the dry bones a valley of dry bones given in a vision to Ezekiel. And that vision has a very specific purpose. We look at dead men's bones and life is impossible. Yet we sit in this promise, there is a resurrection coming. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. It is the proof that he will do what he says he's going to do. So this is where our hope comes from. This is where our purity comes from all revolving around the very promises of God, which are prophecy, foretelling future events, 
and forthtelling. Here is the word of God. Be warned and be blessed all at the same time. That's what prophecy is. Now, prophecy, again, I mentioned earlier that it's not something that we do independent of God. It's a gift. So you can go sit in 1 Corinthians, and there's various, this, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are listed out individually. They're also in the letter to the Romans. And I, there's, a, there's a lot of different gifts, and there's some strange ones. One of the strangest ones is speaking in tongues. I have never spoken in a tongue that I don't know in the praise and glorification of God. I have never interpreted another tongue. However, I have witnessed that. I have been prayed over by people that are speaking in tongues, where there's a lot of times when I, when I hear that kind of behavior, I think people are just running their mouths and doing their own things, believing that they're doing it, but you know, you know, I'm judging them in my heart, I know, forgive me. Um, but there have been other times where this is a gift of God that has been given that I stand in the testimony that that is real, that that is a gift of God, and these men and these women are speaking the word of God and the praises of God in another tongue as a gift of God for its purposes. I have been in a room of a gathering like this where you have one person that stands up and speaks in tongues, and somebody on the other side of the room gives the interpretation of that, where it's not silliness, it's not weirdness, but the whole room is just electrified with the Holy Spirit, and it's, I can sit in that testimony. That right there was the gift of the interpretation of tongues for the edifying of the whole body. I have begged God to give me the gift of tongues hundreds of times. Every time I study the gift of tongues, God, why not? I'm worthy. Last time, last time I asked, in fact, it, was, it wasn't that long ago, as we were going through 1 Corinthians, God told me to knock it off. You know what gift he told me to ask for? the gift of prophecy. Not so that Blake can tell you the future, but my role, and again, as Paul is teaching about these gifts, the role that I have in the church as the church gathers together is to speak the word of God in his power, with his authority, with his clarity, so that we speak words of understanding about God so that each of us can be edified and built up in God. Amen? So that is, God has given me this very specific, I believe in my devotion and my prayers with God, I have heard from him, Blake, I want you to continually ask me for this gift and that you will trust that I'll empower you as necessary, whatever the context may be, to speak forth his word. And that's what I do day in and day out, just trusting in the Lord. That is Revelation 19.10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I camp on that for a bit, one, to give some definition and clarity, but two, as we move forward in this prophecy and this revelation concerning Jesus, there are over 200 direct references to the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, this specific day that we're going to read about here in just a minute. There are hundreds of prophecies where God has declared this is what the day is like. Most of those are warnings of judgment, and we're going to go and read a couple of those prophecies, just two of them this morning. Uh, again, out of the couple hundred that we could turn to. But here, Revelation 19.11, we'll read through the rest of the chapter. Now, I saw heaven opened, and behold, literally, see, 
a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. I told you, horrific. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. You want Jesus to come back now? It's a mixed bag, huh? Because asking for Jesus to return, for those of us who know him, the glory of that day, the wonder of that day, the celebration of that day is beyond imagination. When we cry for Jesus to come and rule, to deal with the sins of the nations, to bring about his laws, his will, when he comes, those who are in rebellion against him, it's a day of execution, it's a day of judgment, it's a day of war, but we just read it's a day of righteousness. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. So again, there's a, there's a lot of times when we sit in God's actions in judgment and even in war, and it can provide a lot of confusion because death is associated with that. Tribulation, just, I mean, again, just the, the travesty and the, the pain and the mourning and the sorrow that occurs in people's lives because of war. Yet when Jesus comes, that war is a war of righteousness because he's going to deal with sin. He is going to bring about his law and he's going to restrict the ability of human beings to hurt one another. Looking forward to that day? 
We're going to sit in, in that idea of the, his millennial reign in the next couple of weeks, but let's back up and look at what is being defined to us. And ultimately, like I said, from Genesis to Revelation, there is the promise of this day, and everything is in revolving all of those words are it's the testimony of Jesus. John sees this white horse. Again, is this... Heaven is opened. Is Jesus flying down on a winged horse? Is this a wingless horse that's kind of galloping through the air? He sees this particular horse and this one that is on the horse who is the lamb, who is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus the Messiah, and behind him he sees an army of horses. Jude tells us that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, all the way back in Enoch's time, Enoch prophesied that Jesus was going to come back with 10,000s of his saints. And we're going to go into Zechariah and see another promise there. But here, the one, the, all the emphasis is upon the one who is coming, our God to rule and reign, to restore, to redeem. He is intentionally revealing and identifying his nature, his character. And these are, these are words and definitions that as followers of Jesus that we need to press into and know and understand. We're not going to go in depth this morning. But every single one of these you can meditate on extensively of what it means that Jesus is faithful. Every single thing that he has said historically he will faithfully bring about. Every single one of his promises, whatever it may be, he will do. He's faithful. In his relationship as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as God, faithful. In the flesh as he tabernacled among men, everything that he spoke, everything that he did, faithful, trustworthy, honoring of his Father fulfilling all of his promises to the T. Not only is he faithful, but he's true. So therefore, in our God, there is no deception. There is no falsehood. We sit in the contrast as he teaches us and as he instructs us so that we can know what it means for him to be defined as true. He gives us the illustrations and the picture, the imagery of that which is false. Satan has always been called the deceiver. From the very beginning, he has spoken lies about God. Today, he speaks lies about God. We're going to see next week that he is going to be specifically chained and bound so that he cannot lie. Satan is false. We've sat in, in, this, in this prophecy, in this revelation uh, throughout it, continually exposed to the falsehoods that are out there in regards to religion and governments and the nature and character of God and idolatry and all of Satan's plans and purposes to develop his own kingdom and his own false godhood. Jesus stands as the one who is true in all things at all time, past present and future. He is faithful. He is true. Again, this idea of righteousness, it's a, it's a judicial word where he is right. He is just. His laws are good. They are perfect. 
as he judges, which means as he stands in a legal decision in regards to his laws in his righteousness, he is not judging in partiality, he is judging in perfection. Therefore, when we stand before him, we are never going to say that he judged falsely. This is, again, these are ideas that, that well up great confidence and faith, because we all struggle with this, Lord, I'm, I'm not sure, I lack wisdom, I lack knowledge, I lack understanding of the circumstance, I'm blind, I can't see around the corner. So these definitions in regards to who he is, they're to develop and bring about great faith in us. So that regardless of what is standing in front of us, God, you are all of these words. And it wells up faith. In righteousness, he judges, and in war. So this is, this is one of these ideas that I brought up last week. The difficulty that I have personally of coming to God in thanks and praise and worship for the judgments that he's brought about historically. I brought up last week just asking this question, how many of you have ever given God thanks and praise and worship for the flood? It's, it's kind of a foreign thought because when I look at the flood, you know, you see all this death, but wait a minute, the, the, the flood that God brings about in judgment, it was righteous, it was good. The war that he brought about, he used waters as the means of that war, but he did away with the evil in this world. Not all of it, because he preserved eight. And he preserved those eight so that we could be here today. But it's the same thing, as I look to the future day that Jesus is coming, there's a war on that day. And we've already seen in Revelation that demons have come out of the mouth of the false prophet and the Antichrist. And these demons are going out into the world to deceive, to deceive the nations, to come to the nation of Israel in war against God and against all those that name him as their God. So these nations... The Antichrist, the false prophet, these kings, they are all gathered around Jerusalem in the insane attempt to have victory and to execute God. And when Jesus comes in righteousness and makes war with the sword of his mouth, which is the very word of God, we're not carrying swords behind Jesus. We're not lopping off heads. The words of his mouth, this is a day of execution. Now, in prophecy, we're going to go read a couple of prophecies that give expanded definition to that. I am going to keep comment low, but turn to Isaiah 11. And then we're going to go into Zechariah right after this. So Isaiah chapter 11. Most of these words are going to be familiar to most of you. There shall come forth a rod. It's going to rule with a rod of iron from the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is all in regards to the promises associated to King David. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord, the sevenfold Definition of the Holy Spirit of God that we've already studied as we've gone through Revelation. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of 
knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of, breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be a belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Does all this line up with what we just read in Revelation? Same definitions. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a child shall lead them. Let your toddler go lead a lion right now. I don't think so. And the cow shall bear, and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. This division between the tribes of Israel and they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt with his mighty wind he shall shake his fist over the river and strike it with the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt looking to what God has done historically here a prophecy given to Isaiah about the future and all of this imagery ties into what is going to occur when Jesus comes back so yes there is the culmination of this massive massive humanity gathered together in war against their creator and when the creator shows up there is a judgment and there's an execution in that locality around uh, around the city of 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 Jerusalem we've already read that the br- the blood is going to be up to the horse's bridle this day of Armageddon and another prophecy in in uh, revelation let's turn to Zechariah chapter 14 real quick and we'll get in and kind of back to revelation pull all this together So Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to to battle against Jerusalem. The The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. 
but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Again, before Jesus shows up, the scene is horrific. When he shows up, the scene is horrific. But then he begins his kingdom of peace. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against the nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is a mountain just to the east of the old city of Jerusalem, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Hey, there you go. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach to Ezal. Yes, you shall flee. So again, have the imagery. When Jesus comes and he lands on his horse on the Mount of Olives, there is an earthquake that divides this mountain as this city, Jerusalem, is surrounded by the armies of the Antichrist. The armies of the Antichrist, there's an execution that's going to go on. There is carnage that's there. And there is a fleeing of his people out of the city. As you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Those on the other horses in Revelation 19, that shall be you and me in the company of our king. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, the lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. We don't know when that day is, he does. Neither day nor night, but at evening, at evening time it shall happen that there will be light. And in the day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea, so the, to the Dead Sea and to the Mediterranean Sea. And both summer and winter it shall occur, for the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. So we'll go back to Revelation 19. And again, in the prophecy that is going on here, it is, it is the same and similar, a little bit different information that is given, but the context of the prophecies that have already been given, every single one of those will be fulfilled. And here is the day. His eyes, back in Revelation 19.12, again, what he sees, the, like a flame of fire, this has the idea of just his perfect sight and in judgment on his hand, head. These are crowns of authority, not crowns of victory that we've seen multiple times before, but here are his many crowns. There is no authority other than his authority as king. He has a name that no one knows. They can be read, it can be spoken, but the full understanding, comprehension of that name, only Jesus himself knows. The garment that he is clothed in when he comes back is dipped in blood. Commentators debate whether is this a reference to his blood and his sacrifice, or is this in reference to the blood of those who are being executed? There's good arguments on both sides. This title, and again, this gets back to the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy, prophecy being the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. 
So whether or not a, a information that God is communicating to human beings in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, not all of it sounds like it's, well, what does that have to do with Jesus? It might not specifically be talking about him as a person or himself as God, but he's the source of it. So to sit in interpreting the word of God apart from the nature and character of who Jesus is, is there wisdom in that? None. We had a great discussion yesterday in the men's study talking about Boaz marrying Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. In the Old Testament, God gave a law that no Moabite may enter into the assembly of the Lord. Scholars want to sit there and debate, well, what does it mean to be in the assembly of the Lord? And the reality is, is by Boaz marrying Ruth, who is a Moabitess, he was violating the law of God. So if you want to take a very black and white understanding of what God was communicating in excluding the Moabites as an ethnic group of people out of his assembly. And that's a stupid interpretation. And it's a stupid interpretation because Boaz was not violating the word of God. He was honoring the word of God. Because in God is there forgiveness and mercy and restoration and redemption in God. Absolutely. This is everything that he communicates himself to be. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, there is a separation and there is an exclusion. In the midst of that judgment from God and separating man from his physical presence, this spiritual death and this separation that occurred, in the midst of that, God gives a promise. There's coming a day when this enemy that's just lied to you and deceived you, the woman's seed, this prophecy associated with Jesus, he's going to crush that head. And it's this first mention of the gospel, and we have all of this picture of God's future redemption and restoration and invitation back to himself. This is what the Bible communicates from beginning to end. So to pronounce that every single human being who is born of, of the descendants of Moab is forever and eternally cast out of God's presence, it's not what God was communicating through that command. And we're not going to get into the definition of everything that he's communicating. But again, when we sit in interpreting what the word of God says, you can't lose Jesus because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit. It is the life. It is the meaning. It is the breath behind the words that have been given to us, his nature, his heart, his character. His name is called the word of God. He is the source of it all. Armies of heaven, again, this is us, clothed in his righteousness, this gift of grace that we talked about last week, white and clean. We will follow him for all eternity out of his mouth. Again, it's not a literal sword. It's talking to him as the word of God speaking. That is that which he is going to use, his words to strike the nations. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. We've already sat in Psalm 2 in depth can go read that again. So when Jesus sets up shop as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, 
There you go into the prophecy of Daniel, the very end of Daniel, chapter 12. There's these last 1,260 days. At the end of that 1,260 days is when Jesus returns, but then we're given an extra 30 days and an extra 45 days on top of that. And well, what's going on in the midst of that? When Jesus comes back on that day, he is dealing locally around Jerusalem. And there is an idea as there is rebellion, rebellious human beings and believers at the time that he returns, that there is an organizing of his kingdom. There is a putting down further of rebellion, which in some fashion we are seen to participate in that. And then, again, there's a blessing that's associated with coming to the end of these 30 days and ultimately to the end of these 45 days where he is now fully established on this planet over all of the nations where he will rule as king and as lord. And this is not the eternal heaven, and we'll sit in that definition as we get into the millennial reign next week. He will rule with a rod of iron, We've already sat in the definition that he himself is going to tread this winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. And here's his name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, amen. This angel standing in the sun, totally weird definition. What does that mean? Don't know. Is he standing on it, above it, in front of it? Here in all the glory of God, this angel is making this proclamation against flesh. We are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb before that we talked about last week. And now here, the birds are invited to a supper of flesh. Horrific, but it's describing the result of what it means to war against God. It's death. Verse 19, the beast, the Antichrist, Again, this isn't, this is, uh, we've talked before, there's, there's a line is when he talks about uh, these beasts, the beasts of the land and the sea that we saw earlier on. Is he talking about a nation? Is he talking about an individual? It's, it's blurring and it's, there's a mash of it together. Here it's very clearly talking about an individual, not a nation. The beast, the kings of the earth, the armies, when they are gathered to war at Jerusalem, as we just read in Zechariah. The beast, the Antichrist, is going to be captured. And again, this isn't a difficult thing. This is no sweat with him, the false prophet. And again, this is what frees us from fear of any predictions that people want to make. God is always in control. The beast is captured. The false prophet is captured. All their deceptions, all their falsehoods, these two individuals are cast alive into this eternal hell. We'll get more into that next week because we're going to see in a thousand years these two, they're still there. The rest that are there, they're killed with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. Him who sits on the horse and all the birds that were invited are feasting upon the carnage. A mixture of Emotion. But I want you to really sit in the image of that day, that it's a great day. And all those 200-plus prophecies associated with the day of the Lord, again, most of them revolve around the warning of 
the horror of that day for those who are in rebellion against God. Again, the Lord's really been drawing me into enabling me, giving me the power to proclaim his praises and to worship and rejoice and his judgments of evil. Because is that not what we want God to do today? Do we not want God to right now stop everything that you define as wicked? Jesus, come quickly. Yet in his patience, the waiting is because others are going to come. I told you to hold on to the day of the Lord as Sunday in the very beginning because we're going to end in the prayer. My dad gave me this book yesterday, and as a good son, I'm reading it in obedience. But as I fan through it, you know, I know that today I've already titled it, that today is Jesus and his day. So as I'm fanning through it, the first, seriously, the first heading that I see is the Lord's day. So I seriously think that this is going to be a prayer and praise for the day of the Lord's return. And it's not, it's a prayer about today. And I want this to be our prayers. We enter back into worship as we enter into communion, remembering who Jesus is, what it means that he became like us, that he tabernacled in this flesh, that he gave his body for the remission of our sins, that his blood is represented as he shed his blood on the cross for our sins, that it's this image of the new covenant, this promise, this prophecy that he has given to us today through faith in him. He has given you a new heart. And that heart that he has given to you, he has promised to write his words upon it, Jeremiah. Here's our prayer. O Lord, my Lord, this is the day, the heavenly ordinance of rest, the open door of worship, the record of Jesus' resurrection, the seal of the Sabbath to come, the day when saints militant and triumphant unite in endless song. I bless you for the throne of grace, that here at your throne of grace, free favor reigns, that open access to it through the blood of Jesus, that the veil, that which isolated us, restricted us from your presence, that veil is torn aside and I can enter the holiest and find you ready to hear, waiting to be gracious, inviting me to pour out my needs, encouraging my desires, promising to give more than I ask or think. But while I bless you, shame and confusion are mine. I remember my past misuse of sacred things, my irreverent worship, my base ingratitude, my cold, dull praise. Sprinkle all of my past Sabbaths with the cleansing blood of Jesus. And may this day witness deep improvement in me. Give me in rich abundance the blessings the Lord's day was designed to impart. May my heart be found, be, sorry, may my heart be fast bound against worldly thoughts or cares. 
Flood my mind with peace beyond understanding. May my meditations be sweet, my acts of worship, life, liberty, and joy, my drink, the streams that flow from your throne, my food, the precious word, my defense, the shield of faith, and may my heart be more knit to Jesus. Amen.